welcome in and this is another edition of the legacy right and we got yet again more special guests coming on uh but uh before we jump to the intro of the intro of the intro of the show uh like i said we are back like lysander spooner says hello legacy right i am the legacy of jennifer and kaiser this is andrew joseph with max sterner uh in the background uh because we're fighting for the future that uh most men just don't really give a shit about anymore um and uh that's what's sad so that's what's sad i mean and uh we'll we'll jump into some future stuff uh some past the future stuff as well because there's a there's a different, there's something to say about this quote behind Andrew that you're seeing. And uh, you can actually go and uh, dive into Exodus and kind of uh, see what that quote's really about, in my opinion. So, uh, but, um, but yeah, this is another edition. We have uh, Alex Bernardo. Did I say that Absolutely. right? Yeah, you got it. You got it. Yeah. Um, from uh, Protestant Libertarian uh, at Pro Liberty. Uh, over on X, if you want to follow him, if you haven't already, if you haven't, you probably live on your rocks. So, um, he's and um, but uh, let's uh, let's let's throw in some ads first, though. Yeah, we gotta we gotta plug. throw the plug. Um, so fanghornforesters.com, Fanghorn, you know, the leader of the Ents in Lord of the Rings. Well, that's where you get fanghornforesters.com. Um, and for all your woodworking needs and necessities, knickknacks, bowls, knife cutting boards, uh, coasters, or actual construction um, such as decks, uh, doors, countertops, tables, I mean, you name it, uh, go over to fanghornforesters.com. You can find the information right there, email, listing, phone number, um, and uh, go and put in a bid and then see what else uh, you can finagle out of uh mr jonah and my cousin i gotta plug this out for so fanghornforesters.com and let's get to the show so how is uh everything going today andrew i'm doing pretty good thanks how you doing zach i'm doing all right so i uh, feel a little bit better man uh been a horrible month and a half from fighting yeah anxiety attacks and then um, next thing you know i had stomach issues and it's oh, just not, you know. not good so but uh we're back in the saddle and uh let's uh let's jump into it so um and to start to, to start us off um alex would you like to introduce yourself to uh our listeners if they haven't listened to you before um make some plugs of your own yeah i appreciate it man my name my name is like you said is alex bernardo and i'm the host of the protestant libertarian podcast over on the libertarian christian institute which is a show that combines biblical studies and political philosophies it's kind of what i like to do uh and that's really my my, my interest range i've been a libertarian for i guess at this point man it's 2024 20, so i guess about eight years now uh mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like it's been that long uh but yeah i've been a libertarian for a while very committed to that philosophy but also trying to integrate how biblical theology and biblical studies can fit within a, liber a libertarian framework of understanding the world and i think there's a lot of really interesting overlap there and that's mm -hmm. just kind of what my sh my show explores uh i would recommend if you like if you are listening to this and you have heard my show before go to libertarianchristians.org 
Pittsburgh. That's our organization's website. There's a lot of great podcasts, a lot of great content over there. A lot of us write articles that get published on that website. So a lot of good stuff if you're interested on the if you're interested in the intersection between Christianity and libertarianism. And there are Christians from all different denominations and theological backgrounds over there. So there's a lot of healthy diversity on uh, on um, the Libertarian Christian Institute. So go check all that stuff out. Fantastic. And what's interesting about the, the libertarian aspect of Christianity is there is a lot of parallel, in my opinion, especially when you look into the New Testament, the teachings of Jesus and his ministry. Um, it, when it all comes down to it, it's voluntary. It's voluntary attributes. So that's what libertarianism is all about or anarchism, as uh, I would want to promote more for rather than the. Uh, call myself a libertarian because i think the party archy has kind of been muddled and poisoned the politics politics doesn't work so um but when it comes down to it voluntarism uh whether you want to call it libertarianism or anarchy or agorism or counter-economics or just straightforward positive relationships with people i mean that's basically what it is it's all about love and what did jesus teach I mean, besides redeeming us of our sins and opening up the gates of heaven when he was crucified, what uh, if you have faith in that and believe in that, not everybody believes in that. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's that's where it, it, it begins. Like it's all about love. Love conquers all. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And again, like as libertarians and as Christians, we want a world where there's peace and love and freedom. Like those are the values that we should be striving for. And I think that it's it's impossible. It's like you said, this is the mistake that a lot of progressive Christians make when they read the Bible is they just assume that because the church and the writers of the New Testament talk about charity, that that therefore means that we need a large socialist state to redistribute wealth to those that are in need. And that's not the case at all. The 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 challenge of the New Testament is that if you call yourself a Christian, you have an obligation to be generous towards those that are in your life, especially those that are in need. And we we have to do that as a, as an aspect of our as a, as an aspect of our moral obligation to God. But that can't be coerced or compelled by the state. And so that's why, like, I think it's so important for you to highlight that distinction that Jesus is all about voluntary charity. I think a lot of people see the charity but miss the voluntary aspect of that. And for us as Christians, like, if we're not being generous with our money, then that's a problem morally for us. What is also a problem is to assume that the state needs to go and take a bunch of money from other people and then redistribute it to the people that the state thinks deserves it, which is always uh, which is always the way that, that progressive Christians seem to construe this. And there's nothing biblical about that at all. No, no, that it's in um, in the socialist aspect, and I, mean, I know it gets kind of filtered down as if socialism can be uh, misconstrued to a good thing. And there, there's some positive aspects. There's positive aspects to everything, but there's also drawbacks to everything. I mean, there's radicalism in Christianity, Judaism, uh, Christ or uh, Islam specifically now in today's world, and. I mean, I think a lot of that has everything to do with politics and and impoverishment that the politics and the interventions of and the socialist philosophy, in my opinion, the the distributing of of uh, stolen monies from one end to the next causes a, a an irreparable uh, relationship. So it's kind of hard to to mend. Uh, what, what's the what's the word I'm I'm looking for, Andrew? <laughs> Mend, well, uh, uh, I guess this ties uh, relationships. You know, blowback is caused yeah. by, like you said, by by the way that they're treating society. So it's always just mm -hmm. going to make it worse as, mm -hmm. it, as it continues to develop. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's I mean that's how it how it goes. I mean, socialism. Uh, I mean, as a as a principle, uh, following for the most part, it, it sounds fantastic on paper, but when it all comes down to the grit and granny nobody's nobody's actually going to abide by that everybody's an authoritarian in their own right everybody's out there for their selfish interests we're all human beings i mean the bible talks about it i mean that's one reason why the old testament's filled with uh, uh just death despair and destruction and an angry god i mean evil had to be cleansed the flood occurred for a reason i mean the nephilim had to be cleansed of the earth the, the sin had to be repaired and and then everything had to re be restarted again from the sins of Adam. So, I mean, that's I mean, so that there that's that's my take on it, at, at least. So, I mean, so I'm not rambling on. I mean, let's 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 move forward, I guess. So any anything to say about that, Alex? Yeah, I, no, I think I think you're absolutely right about that. And this is something that a lot of people miss in Genesis uh, in the first couple of chapters of Genesis is that in a lot of ways, the Bible is a radical critique of human power, which is what libertarianism is as well. That's why we believe that power exists, but you have to decentralize it and diffuse it as much as possible, or those that have the power will use it to oppress those that don't. And when you go back to the stories in the earliest chapters of Genesis, God creates a good world, mm -hmm. uh, and he creates people in his image and likeness, and he gives them dominion over creation. We're supposed to exercise God's rule over creation on his behalf, but there's no need for like a government or a state or anything like that because God is king in that scenario. You have this good world. God provides everything that we need in the garden, and we are supposed to cultivate that that garden but he gives humanity the choice he puts one tree in the garden of eden and says this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil do not eat from this and then in genesis chapter three you have the serpent tempting the man and the woman in the garden and what does the serpent say no no you should definitely eat it and if you do you will be like god and that is the sin that messes up all of creation and really the rest of the bible is a story about how god has to work through his people to undo the sin of the man and the woman in the garden but people Forget that that sin is about human beings attempting to be like God. So it's about usurping his power and replacing it with our own. And so like even even fundamental to the, the problem of human sin is the, in the Bible is this idea that human beings should try to be like God. And I can't think of anything that is a, a more accurate instantiation of that than the state. The idea that a group of human beings have the right and the destiny to control everyone else in society, it seems like it's just taking us back to the garden. And it's an attempt of us as human beings to try to exercise the kind of power and authority that only God is supposed to have. Well, so what's interesting you say that with the state is, I mean, it seems like the, the more sadistic, uh, almost murder cult of the state that we've definitely seen through the 20th century kind of began like kind of it kind of it, it kind of begins with uh like Aleister Crowley and his his dominion on 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 his cultish following I mean and what it led to and I, I think at one point they even they they even misconstrue the the story of Genesis add they add a name to uh to God, God is Adonai. Adonai is accordingly the supposed evil one, because or we don't necessarily know if he's evil or or bad evil, um, or good evil, neutral, whatnot. Um, but Lucifer is the serpent. Obviously, he's considered the serpent. The serpent is the is the 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 mimic of Lucifer. Lucifer is considered to be 
the, I mean, at one point he was the anointed one. He was the illuminated one, God's right-hand man until the fall. But the, the idea around Aleister Crowley and his Luciferian principles, or I don't even know if you want to call it that, but that's, I mean, you're, you're bringing in a mesh of calling what should be, what's always been considered an evil um, represented by Lucifer and then bringing in Adonai and this neutral slash their version of evil who just pretty much created man and then said, no, you, you, you obey. I mean, it's kind of like a, a reverse psychology, in my opinion, like Adonai created man to obey Adonai and that's it. You are, you be good, good, obedient souls and you get to live a happy, peaceful, mundane life safe and, and and then lucifer comes and says no if you eat this fruit um yeah i mean you can be you can measure yourself up to uh the gods you can be just as as high and mighty you can have the power you can have all the knowledge and you'll be just as free if not more free because you'll be you'll be more power you'll be equal to us and, you'll go woke <laughs> you'll yeah. go woke so and that's what it sounds like it sounds like and then you look in today's the, the generality of today and where do you where, do, where are we at we're at this woke mob culture this cancellation everybody's uh kind of stuck in a a web of uh the science and then different cultish religious beliefs mainly statism um and there's just a war between uh between People against people are uh, pitted together, um, as David Icke would like to say. It's it's all reptilian. Mm. I agree. I think it might be a little reptilian. I mean, or demonic. Yeah, and and that really is a big difference between I think the the kind of the woke critical theory mentality and the libertarian mentality. The thing that I appreciate about critical theory is that it is an attempt to analyze how power dynamics work in our society, but I think it's it's the wrong attempt. So what libertarianism mm -hmm. does, as we said before. Because libertarianism is a critique of human power. We understand that it exists, but we have to limit it. We have to decentralize it. We have to diffuse it to as many people as possible so that one person or one organization cannot exercise too much power in society. Well, the critical theorists have a theory of power where there's always a group of oppressors and there's always a group of people that are oppressed. But the goal of critical theory and the politics that are derived from that critical way of understanding social relationships is not we need to get rid of the power of the oppressor. It's that we need to take the power away from the oppressor and give it to the oppressed. I don't think that they realize that in the future, that's only going to create the exact same power dynamic only in reverse. Mm -hmm. If you take power away from one group of people and give it to another group of people, you haven't solved the problem of dominion over another human being. And I just think the thing that people fundamentally don't think about, and this is why libertarianism is a superior philosophy to the philosophy of critical theory, it, because it's, it's a philosophy that understands the destructive nature of human power, which is a major theme throughout the Bible as well. That's where mm -hmm. I think a lot of these ideas kind of intersect. I think it's really important for people to consider that. And a lot of people just a lot of people in the mainstream just have never, never tried to think about it in those terms. Now when you when when we're talking about oppressed though, like what does that even mean in today's world? Like I mean, <laughs> um who is who is exactly oppressed? Because um oppression, if you want to go further on, is everybody at some point has been oppressed. I mean, you can look in the Bible. I mean, the ancient Hebrews were oppressed multiple times, whether it's, uh, whether it's when they, uh, 
migrated into Egypt and after generations became the slaves of the Pharaoh or, or their captivity and you know, their Assyrian captivity or their Babylonian captivity. I mean, Rome, Greece, I mean, you can go on and on and so forth. I mean, they're their diaspora by the Romans where they're just kicked out of the Holy land. I mean, so like who exactly are we talking about when we're talking about the critical race theorists, whom, whom is the, the oppressed, um, be, who, who is being oppressed? Who are the oppressed and who are the oppressors? If everybody through history, um, has been oppressed at some time, some, at some time, um, or another. Yeah, I mean, that's that's completely true. And what's funny is, I, I mean, I know we all come from the same area, but like growing up in Kentucky, one, one of the one of the one of the social dynamics that's positive by the critical theorists is that there's always a power imbalance between white people and black people, um, as if white people just intrinsically have all the power in the society and black people don't. But when I was growing up in Kentucky, the majority of the people that I knew that were poor, actually, almost everyone that I knew that was poor was white because those were the people that were living in my area and so when people would say that somebody like barack obama is being inherently pressed uh, being inherently oppressed by some of these poor white people from rural kentucky that just does not make any sense but again we can't base oppression on these immutable characteristics like color because it's really about who has access to more power in society and again i, I just don't understand how people can't look at the eight years that obama was president and think that the idea that just because someone has a darker pigmented skin that they are therefore necessarily more oppressed than somebody that has a lighter pigmented skin it just doesn't it doesn't make any sense mm -hmm. yeah and i mean not, not not to mention the fact that they were oppressed by probably the same pigment of skin tone prior to being oppressed by say white people like with the african slave trade so i mean it's it, it's more of a trade-off sad it's sad and i mean it's more of a trade-off based in markets and there are ills negatives when it comes to to market-based economies and one of one such was slavery and i mean when you have a a more powerful tribe um because they're able to meet the white man first the portuguese or the british or the dutch or whomever and trade with them for guns now they're the more powerful tribe. So what do you think they're going to do? They're going to conquer the smaller tribes and then they're going to kick weaker of the week. Whoever doesn't get killed in, in battle, they're going to kidnap and then they're going to, they're going to get the, the, the white man, what they want. I mean, free labor so that they can traffic and sell uh, as labor across the pond, across the Atlantic and the new world or in India or back to Europe. I mean, and make, profit it's just a never-ending circle of course progressives and socialists would say well that that's that's where capitalism that's where free markets are that's where we go wrong at this is why we don't we we shouldn't have free markets so and and i say no 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 there's always there's always negatives to every positive so i mean you got to have a counterbalance yeah, I, I agree. And again, you can't have and I, I think a lot of people are just so fundamentally ignorant about economics that they aren't able to make those distinctions. But if you have a society in which there are no property rights, no 
freedom of speech and no freedom of association. By default, you cannot have a capitalist system because capitalism, the free exchange of goods and services between people requires all of these other prerequisite freedoms in order to function. And this is what Ludwig von Mises talks about a lot in his work. He calls it planning for freedom. What he means by that is not central planning an economy from the top down, but creating a social system that inherently gives people the freedom to be able to make their own choices about production and consumption. And you can't do that without also slavery by default is anti-capitalistic because you're inherently infringing upon the, the the property rights of somebody else. And the most important property mm -hmm. right of all is your right of self-ownership. Like you own yeah. yourself and you own your decisions. And if you enslave somebody, that's not capitalism because you're not giving them the freedom to make choices about the most fundamental property they own, which is their own body. And a lot of people just don't, they just don't, they don't see it that way. Mm -hmm. And then that's, that's, uh, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of the ignorance of economics is, is uh, I mean, the public school system, uh, sadly, I mean, uh, if you sat through an economics class and uh, I know I had it in 12th grade, I think most people have it in 12th hmm. grade, you sit through a, a basic high school economics class, it's mundane, it's boring, There, there's not much talking about. I think the, the biggest thing that we did when I was in high school um, was we had a stock market project project. And that was the extent of economics. Other than that, it was just a glorified uh, shit talk study hall. I mean, and unless we were yeah. in a computer lab doing our stock portfolio for the project, that was it. I mean, and there's just there's just no. I mean, it's a lot of economics is also promoted as being uh, a little bit more complex than what it truly is. You have you have to include all this math and all this empirical uh thinking and and research and i mean and people tend to not want to look forward towards something that's more difficult um and to learn and, and be able to understand when it's hard to understand because of the macro and the micro and all the algebra and the calculus and i mean and, and in reality what mises brings up and hazlitt and rothbard um these are guys that they they, they came they can on their own establishing the idea that it's just intrinsically basic. I mean, it's supply and demand, it's human action. And I mean, yeah. if people, and if we, if we can just teach people to, to come down to that simple form, then we can maybe advance more further into the larger concept of economics. But as far as like markets and, and actually doing business entrepreneurship, that's, it's just as basic as it comes supply demand customer and human innovation oh, creation yeah. Say, that, yeah say that again andrew i didn't That's catch a, that you said customer and i said client so you know client customer patient uh, man, same thing right yeah mm-hmm well, and, and that's – I mean you bring up a good point about how the education system doesn't give us the skills that we need to think through this because when I was in high school, all of the elective classes that I took were social studies elective classes, but I did not take – I had an opportunity, like you said, to take economics my senior year, but it was billed mm -hmm. as a math class in high school, and I didn't really much care for math, so I skipped economics, and mm -hmm. it wasn't until I started working on my graduate degree like 10 years after I graduated from high school that I took an economics class for the first 
first time. And I remember like I'd been uh, I'd been in ministry for a long time up to this point, And I was one of those people that was economically ignorant. I, you know, worked a, I worked an, another full time job. Uh, the ministry was kind of like my part time gig as a career I was trying to get started. So I worked a full time job and I learned a lot about mm -hmm. like taxation is harmful to people and and we need people to be responsible for their own decisions. But as a Christian, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, I believed in charity. And so I just thought that I, I thought maybe, you know, we need a little bit of socialism just mm -hmm. based on my complete economic ignorance. I didn't know anything about the how capitalism or socialism actually worked or about those definitions. But I remember just thinking, okay, well, maybe there should be like, a, you know, a small, a minimum welfare state, and maybe we need to have the roads and the schools and all that kind of stuff. And I thought that that was what socialism meant. And I I remember going into this economics class and opening the economics textbook and reading the first two chapters on scarcity and choice and supply and demand. And that changed everything for me. I was like, I never like these are these issues are so fundamental. They're like so simple, but I never thought about them before. And then I immediately skipped to the back of the book where they had a chapter on capitalism and socialism. And they very simply define capitalism as a system that was decentralized where economic decisions were made by individuals and where private individuals own the factors of production. And socialism is the exact opposite. All economic decision making is centralized. And, you know, the public, a.k.a. the government, owns the factors of production. And I was like, wait, I'm actually a capitalist. This makes a lot of sense, you know, and I think yeah. that I think that if people were just able to take if people were just able to have a taste of those economic systems and if, if they were able to kind of accurately assess what those vocabulary terms mean, then I think that would completely change the conversation in this country. But you have these these people with 50, 60, 100,000 followers on Twitter that talk about capitalism and socialism all day long, and they don't know what these terms fundamentally mean. And that's 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 sad. That's a shame. That is that is sad. I mean, and, and truth be told, I mean, when it comes to capitalism, realistically, like we shouldn't really we shouldn't be bragging about capitalism anyways, because uh, I come from a perspective of um, the realistic perspective is capitalism never really was never really a term until Karl Marx came about Engels and Marx. So they kind of coined it. And, and in reality, like most of the schools of capitalism, you can kind of you can kind of understand where the socialist perspective for capitalism is, is coming at them and in a little, in a little intervention from government here and a little bit of centralization. I mean, there, and, and I mean, for the most part, the federal reserve, I mean, usury is, you could say is capitalist. I mean, so I like calling it free yeah. markets um, or being more agoristic on the approach, but for like, for like, the simple like the simple terms of like not going back and forth and confusing people i call i, I just say capitalism because it's like why not like call it capitalism it's capitalism socialism whatever so but yeah that's a, a, exactly what it is like capitalism i mean i think every human being as an individual is capitalistic or free marketeer in some capacity because we, we we're always we're always hustling for something Let's just put it that way. Yeah, trying to grow. Mm -hmm. So, but one thing I will have to say, and I got to get into the Bible on this, and it comes to taxation. What does uh, everybody always, everybody has this question. And um, everybody, every Christian is, uh, I mean, progressive, conservative, libertarian, doesn't matter. Um, they're always on, on the fence, on the argument of what Jesus meant for uh the render unto caesar uh 
verse what 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 does he mean yeah that that is a that is a really really challenging question and if i ever find out exactly what he means i'll be the first to let you know i think i think that there there are definitely some considerations that we have to to make here and i'm actually i'm opening my bible to that passage there because there are there there's a lot going on in that tradition that i think people do not recognize and i think that we need to make some very important distinctions so here let me make sure i got yes all right so the first occurrence so the gospel of mark is probably historically the first of the four gospels to be written and so the first tradition where this statement was recorded was in mark chapter 12 and the passage says he uh, jesus is jesus is in he's it's the the passover the week before he dies and he's in jerusalem and he is in a conflict with the leaders of jerusalem the leaders of the jewish people and then the political authorities as well and there's really no difference between the political and religious authorities back then there were some different offices but they would not have separated out political and religious leadership in the way that we do in the modern world. But this is how the this is how that passage goes. It says, uh, then they, the leaders, sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to trap Jesus uh, in a statement. And they came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or not? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me your denarius to look at. They brought one, and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, see Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they were amazed at him. Now, this is in in all three of the Gospels or all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. Yeah. This is a part of a tradition that includes other conflicts with the leaders of Jesus's day. And so this isn't this isn't transmitted in isolation. So in other words, Jesus has another battle with the Sadducees over the resurrection. He has another battle with uh, with. Uh, some scribes over what is the most uh, what is the most important of all the teachings in the law, and so we have to understand that in that context. And this passage comes right after Jesus has this this parable where he talks about how God is going to destroy Jerusalem because of their corruption and their wickedness. And I think that one of the ironies of this text is that when the Pharisees come to Jesus, these are these are good Jews, people that are people that are not supposed to worship the pagan gods, people that are not supposed to uh, put their put their their uh, their faith in Caesar. Jesus says whose inscription is on the coin and then who is the one that produces a coin with the, the blasphemous picture of Caesar on it? It's the Pharisees. So the Pharisees have this coin in their pocket with an image of Caesar on it. And Jesus says, ah, oh, I got you. You're being hypocritical. And he says, whose, whose image is that? And he says, render unto Caesar. I think that Jesus is diffusing that statement. And I think that Jesus is trying to demonstrate that the Pharisees are not concerned about whether or not Jesus is a good law abiding Jew. They're trying to trap him because of their own self-interest. And this is one of the things that I think people need to be very careful of when they're reading the Bible. Just because the Bible in a, a place like this deals with the issue of taxation does not mean that the writers of the Bible are trying to give us a timeless theory or theology about the purpose and the example of taxation. So, for instance, just because Jesus is mentioning that there is a conversation here, just because Mark is mentioning that there is a conversation here going on about the poll tax, Mark is not taking a stand on whether or not taxation is theft, because that's not the purpose of this passage. The purpose of this passage is to demonstrate that Jesus is outsmarting the leaders of his day that want to crucify him. That's the overall message. That's the overall theme of this passage. And so we don't want to extrapolate from that a timeless theory of taxation, because that's not that's not the point of this passage. So I don't think that this passage in particular has anything to do with whether or not we as Christians, in, in other words, it doesn't it doesn't legitimize taxation any more than it, it critiques 
having coins that have pictures mm -hmm. of leaders on them. That's not the purpose of the passage. The purpose is to show that Jesus is superior to the Jewish leaders and that the punishment that God is going to bring on them is inherently just. That's, I think, the what Jesus is getting at here. Does that, does that make sense? Um, yeah, actually, yeah. That, that would make more sense than the taxation aspect because um, – what is it? Uh, the tenth commandment, the the first commandment, or wait, is it the first or the third? But anyways, um, thou shalt not have uh, other gods or worship other gods before me, and that would be idolatry to have the face of Caesar on your coin. I mean, that would go against the Jew, the Jewish faith for the Pharisees. The fact that their their own self interest is to enrich themselves with coinage of of uh, what is effectively a Roman dinar, um, they're enriching themselves. So, and then that coin has the face of Caesar, Caesar Augustus on it. And at that point, I mean, he wasn't really a deity, but he was essentially worshiped as if a, he were a deity, um, being Caesar of Rome, emperor of Rome. So, I mean, that's idolatry. So that would be breaking the, the, the commandment of, of worshiping other gods before the one true God. So, I mean, it, it is, I mean, it's more, it's more challenging the hypocrisy of the Pharisees rather than saying taxation is theft or just, I mean, it's, it's more just toying with, with the, the hypocrites that the Pharisees have become over the, over the, the years of Rome uh, being in Judea. Yeah, and I I think that this would be to to make the if if I was to turn this into a modern parallel, I think that this would be akin to if Jesus was to go to a modern American church where the people that were at that church said, We believe that Jesus is Lord. And then at the end of the service, they stood up and said the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. Well, you can't have both of those things, right? And, and it's obviously a double standard. Now, if Jesus was to criticize the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, this doesn't mean that Jesus is making a timeless statement about the nature of government or any of those kind of things. He's, he would be telling the Christians what you're doing is hypocritical because you say that you you say that I am your king, but then you also pledge allegiance to this state. And I think that there's a very similar point being made here. Jesus is not talking about a theory of taxation. Jesus is simply saying your guys's priorities are not right and you need to deal with that issue from the heart. There has been a lot of historical research done on this passage. And again, there is no academic consensus as to what Jesus means here. The biblical scholars are completely divided, but there has been some good research done into the way that coins were minted during this period. And there are some scholars that think that the Jewish temple minted coins or had coins minted for them that depicted pictures of plants and other things like that. And that that would have been the customary currency that Jews would have used when they went and bought offerings and sacrifices and spent money at the temple. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that these that these Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the Herodians don't have these other coins, but have coins with the inscription of Caesar is the, that, that is the problem itself. And then, and I mean, speaking of like the difference between like, say the minting of the dinar and then the minting of the different coins used without the face of say people and plants and all that for temple purchase. Yeah. It kind of makes sense from when Jesus goes in uh, to the temple and, and throws his tantrum and, and throws all the money changers out of the temple and destroys and wreaks havoc essentially uh putting him uh, putting his fate like uh pretty much um 
but uh, it, it kind of makes sense of why he goes in there because they're they're uh, they're exchanging these goods um, in the temple at this point, most certainly in Roman dinars because this is a a Roman province and Rome is becoming much more of a greater influence, uh, specifically with their their puppet uh, kings and that they've held for the last few generations in in Judea. So I mean now it makes sense like. From that passage, the render under Caesar passage, and then the theater in the in the temple of the throwing out of the money cha- money changers, uh, kind of makes sense of what Jesus's mindset is and the idolatry and the disrespect to God factor and and going against the faith more so than taxation and usury and all this and that that's a that's a totally different concept for and a different argument for another day that we'll probably continue to have so yeah and i and i I do think too this is where people automatically assume that the ancients had to think in the same categories that we did but when people living in the first sensory thought about economics and they thought about empire and they thought about taxation their categories for thinking about those are just completely different than our own and so we shouldn't assume that just because they seem to be dealing with an issue that is very important to us in the 21st century that they necessarily thought about it in the same way that we do in the modern world and i think a lot of people make these historical category mistakes so for instance in antiquity there was no industrialized economy because they they didn't have they didn't have you know steam powered or electric industry so so their entire economy was a lot different. The assumptions that they made about the economy was a lot different. The path to wealth and what wealthy people should do was much different than it was in the modern world. And I think that we jump back into antiquity and take all of our modern ideas with us without realizing that they just wouldn't have thought that way. And in a lot of ways, we cannot draw easy parallels between what happened in the first century and what happened in the 21st century. I think that we can get principles from a lot of these texts in the Bible. And so a great principle that arises out of Mark chapter 12 here is that our ultimate loyalty should be towards God. That's the principle. But I don't think that we can draw any further detailed conclusions about how we need to structure a modern economy or think about taxation in the modern sense from this passage, because that was not what it was intending to communicate to its original audience. That's not the purpose of the passage. And we shouldn't try to fit it into any sort of schema that it was not ever intended to address. Fantastic. And then I think that's the that's a great part to transition. I mean, towards uh because i like the aspect that you you brought about the ancients thought a different way and and that's one reason why they were less industrial (laughs) industrious than we are today is is because of the lack of technological innovations that they had then that they didn't have then that we have now um and uh, i think that's a that's a brilliant way of bringing andrew into this conversation uh because uh, and and get started on this this Exodus idea of what the, what Exodus can provide for us on a, not only a Christian standard but on a libertarian standard. So, Andrew, you want to you want to jump in on this? Well, I mean, you, could, you think about if you go back and read the Bible, uh, they talk about how uh, narrow minded the Pharaoh was, and how it it really took a lot of effort for. Uh, for you know to be impressed upon him that um that he's got it he's got it and he's not in a right in the in the way he was presenting uh towards his population and how he wasn't supporting 
more sorry uh, the way he was presenting was was kind of narrow-minded and that there are different perspectives on how society could be run and they wanted that freedom but they couldn't uh, it just took a, a lot of effort to push him to let them go and be independent so and I got a question for for both of y'all. How how is it that because I know as we're winding down Genesis and we have the story of of Joseph and and uh, well Jacob's sons and and the story of Joseph being uh, duped in by his brothers, his jealous brothers that sell him into slavery and he winds up in Egypt and it turns out he ends up being uh, being favored by pharaoh and given a very uh esteemed position and when famine comes to uh i guess it, it was called canaan then but uh to the to the land of, of canaan um and the brothers uh, are, and their families are forced to to migrate to egypt uh and that's how joseph is able to bring them in um how do we go from uh migration because of famine um, and and uh, uh, and the permission of being able to come into, into Egypt, settle and, and and start a new life in order to survive to the aspect of of the Hebrews being slaves. So how do we go from how do we go from migratory uh, immigration towards uh, slavery? Yeah, what do you think, Andrew? I mean, things settle as as society develops and people get complacent. So that that wouldn't be that wouldn't be surprising to me. Um, it takes the once people get comfortable, it's really hard to get out of at, or get get into a new groove. There's a there's a lot of confluence, a lot of pressure to, to continue the 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 system that's been developed. That's fair. So what you're saying is like the complacency and the comfort mentality of yeah. of one party or of a of a people of a certain group. They, I mean, it causes them to kind of get so thrust into the society that they that they have become accustomed to that they end up forgetting their own uh, customs, their own culture, and then. They're absorbed, and but yet, because they've absorbed themselves into another culture and they've assimilated, um, generations down the road, you want to, you gotta decipher. Okay, who's who's the pure blood, and who's the who's who's the, the imposter? And it sounds like that. Might, yeah, go on. Just who's mm -hmm. like you said, who's who, and the support is basically the lower class mm -mm. yeah 
So do you think that the, yeah, that's a fair? No, no. I, I mean that that is maybe maybe one of the greatest themes of the Old Testament is that Abraham's family, God's people, is supposed to remain distinct from the nations that are around them. That's why God gave them the law. It was so that they could be holy or separate mm-hmm. from the nations around them. Because again, if you go back to with, with Exodus, we understand that like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible were originally composed as one literary word that fit on five. Different different scrolls. So all five mm-hmm. of those books are one continuous narrative and they're designed to be read together. So themes that are present in the, the earliest chapters of Genesis run their way throughout the rest of the Pentateuch. And so again, you have going back to Genesis chapter three, the fall of man into sin. And then you have the story of Cain and Abel, the story of Noah and the flood and the story of the tower of Babel, demonstrating that human beings, when they grasp for power on their own, only make God's good creation worse and worse. And what does God do to solve that problem? In Genesis chapter 12, he calls Abraham and promises him a family. And ultimately God will rule over the world again through Abraham's family, but all throughout Genesis, there are these situations in which it seems like Abraham's family is going to be extinct, or like you were saying, they're going to be assimilated into nations that are around them. Mm-hmm. So they get into Exodus, and I think you guys set this up perfectly. There, there, there are two combinations. They became, like Andrew said, complacent in their position in, in Egypt. They were, so, they were so connected to that Egyptian culture that they didn't want to fight for it. And then on the flip side of that, you have a new pharaoh that comes to power in Exodus chapter 1, and that pharaoh, it feels like he's threatened threatened by the power and the prestige of the Hebrew people. So what does he do? Or what does he do? He enslaves them so that they're not a threat to his power. And this is what makes Moses so frustrated. The Hebrews aren't willing to fight back for their freedom, even though God God called them to be distinct. And he made all these promises for them to be separate from the nations and to be a light to the nations. They're not willing to fight for that, even in the earliest chapters of the book of Exodus. And this is going to create a set of problems that are going to be carried out throughout the rest of the Pentateuch. So I think you guys hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's that combination of complacency and not realizing that as God's people, they were supposed to be set apart from the Egyptians. It's, uh, it's kind of like how uh, Shane Falco in The Replacements, when he's asked what his greatest fear is, and he says quicksand. Uh, quicksand. So, I mean, the the fact that the, 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 the scary aspect of life, um, not knowing what not knowing your future not knowing what what to expect it it drags you down very slowly like quicksand so i mean and that's sort of what it what we're kind of watching and and as we read through exodus especially the earlier aspect the earlier passages before moses becomes well known as the as the act as the leader the 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 new father of of the Israelite nation, um, you're you're watching the fear of not one not wanting to give it given it. So like, well, if we stop working, then I don't have a home, or uh, they might murder my my only my firstborn son or whatever. I mean, so all that fear going through the of of not knowing what to expect if they just fight this lay down lay down their their tools and and pick up a or better yet turn their tools into weapons upon the the egyptians and fight for their right to their own self-ownership their own bodies i mean and, and to free themselves um instead they just they take the beating and they they and they just on about their business and they're 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 compliant for comfort i mean if they're not compliant they're not comfortable 
Yeah. And I think one of the really frustrating like aspects of Exodus is that God goes through this massive process where he calls Moses and Aaron to be a representative for God and his people before Pharaoh. And eventually God delivers them through the way you have Passover and then you have God delivering through the Red Sea. And he makes all these promises to Israel in the wilderness. But no sooner have the waters of the Red Sea receded back to their level, killing all of Pharaoh's army. Then what do the what do the Israelites do? They complain that it's hard in the desert and they beg to go back to Egypt. It's like God just rescued you from years of brutal slavery and you're upset that he's not going to be able to provide you with food and water and you want to go back to the Egyptians. So I also think too, I mean, there's something that the, the idea, and again, Israel struggles with this and ultimately fails because throughout the, the, the Old Testament, they're not able to maintain that distinction. Mm-hmm. So Exodus introduces this theme of Israel wanting to reject its God-given call and instead be like the nations that surround them. So I think that there's that aspect of it too. But then I think like even for Christians today, I think a, kind of a good principle that we can draw from that is that we shouldn't want to be assimilated. We, we shouldn't want to look like the people that are around us or think like the people that are around us. Like we have to have a completely different way of understanding the world and of orienting our values. And the Israelites just completely failed to do that. Even after they saw God deliver them and destroy the army of the Pharaoh and they saw all the plagues and everything, their response was, we don't like what God has done. We want to go back to Egypt. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us are like that in our person. I think a lot of us, we, the God comes and does something powerful in our life. And we're like, you know, that was really great for a time. I think I want to go back to doing the things that I was doing before, mm-hmm. you know, and it's just, it's just, but that's, that's the human, but you, but I, I think we can, we can sympathize with the Hebrews because, because that's the human condition. I think that's part of what Exodus is trying to tell us that human beings, when they try to follow their own path and be like God, will ultimately only wind up becoming like the idols that they mm-hmm. worship. And then it, it leads on to, like, say, 1 Samuel when, uh, yeah, um, when they vie for a king just like, you know, to be just like every other nation around them, as you, as you said. I mean, that's that's taking yeah. a step backwards. I mean, you, you're, you're trying to be distinct, and yet you want a king. Well, okay, well. Let them have a king. What what happens there? Um, I mean, they got a king, and they had excess war, and they were stolen from, and that in it, it it that's that takes it back to the libertarian yeah. standard and into society today. I mean, for us as individuals, we we want we we want to we want to own ourselves. We want to govern ourselves. We want to maintain our own responsibility, and we want to be free. But then at the same time. We we're still we're so comfortable that we think we still need a leader to, uh, that needs to protect us from ourselves while we be for while we're being free to do our own thing. So and that's the conundrum that we see from the Bible to throughout the rest of history to now is I mean just the struggle to find what you yourself can maintain, but then you're outsourcing authority to someone else. And if you go to the Bible, the only authority that there is that there should be besides your own is God's. I mean, no other man, you know, man can't rule over man. Only God can rule man. Yeah. And I mean, if you look like the greatest passage for this in the entire Old Testament, Testament is first Samuel eight, where Israel goes to the prophet Samuel and says, Hey, we really want a king so that we can be like the nations that surround God. And what does God say to Samuel? Hey, don't feel 
bad for yourself. They're not really rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king because God is supposed to be king over the family of Abraham. And then it's exactly like you said, Zach. If you read 1 Samuel 8, what does God say? If you get a king, they're going to tax you and they're going to send your children Mm -hmm. to die in wars. That's what it looks like to be a part of the nations that are surrounding you. And that's exactly what happens. The rest of the rest of uh, 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, which recounts the history of Israel up until the Babylonian exile, is a story of Israel trying to be like the nations and them falling and suffering and struggling and then begging God for forgiveness and then going back and doing the same thing over again because that's what it means to reject God as a king. And you're going to give yourself over to terrestrial powers who are only self-interested and only going to use their power to benefit themselves. It's just, again, it's a return to Genesis chapter 3. And there's no way out of that cycle until you realize that God is king and you submit that. It's the only way that you can possibly break that spell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, and that that it, it kind of makes me kind of giddy a little bit when you're when you're looking through and and you go in the say judges and you kind of you read through judges and you you kind of experience the the notion that this is kind of quasi anarchic. I mean, it's more tribal. It's literally the tribes ruling themselves. Yeah, they have conflict with like with Philist with the Philistines. I mean, but it's not to the extent. The, the extent of that conflict doesn't fruition into something more grandier and more violent and bloody until really until they get their king, until the Israelites get their king. Um, but I mean, but it, 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 they, they trade with one another, they have their issues, but I mean, everybody has their issues but for the most part. It's not chaotic. It's, I mean, it's just life is good for the most part for what it can be good. And then, they finally get their king after uh, in in Samuel and 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 then you start seeing the wars. You start seeing the the the, the dire consequences of going up against the the might of the Philistines, their the next door neighbor. Um, and and uh, you just and 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 then you see you see even more of a of a, a ripple effect between the tribes as well um in fact they split oh man you have israel and judah that that are formed um so they can't even agree on who the king should be just like any other nation yep. so i mean i think you hit it on uh, hit it right there it's like we're all anarchic beings but there is a king the king is just not of this world so why not mm-hmm. embrace a little anarchy in this world and understand that the only king that to submit to is is God. Yeah. And this is the really important, this is really important aspect of Jesus's proclamation of the kingdom of God and the Christian belief that Jesus is the true King. You have passages like in Philippians chapter two, where Paul says that Christians need to have the same attitude that Jesus had. And he goes on to say that even though he existed, Jesus existed in the form of God. He didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to, but instead he became a servant by becoming a man and then by dying a death on the cross. But then Paul ends that section by saying, and it's because of this that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess so the the theme there is that the true path to power, what power actually looks like, is being willing to sacrifice and 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 die for other people. That's what it really looks like. And so Jesus's example is what it looks like to be a true human being that exercises power. It's a power that's shaped like the cross. It means that Christians have an obligation to sacrifice for each other, and true power and true leadership is found in that 
practice and that principle. And we call it, you know, in, in, their new, in New Testament scholarship, it's called cruciformity. It's the idea that Christians, when they think about power and when they think about how they ought to treat other people, all of our conceptions of our moral behavior have to be conformed to the cross. Because when Jesus dies as the king on the cross, he's demonstrating to us that this is what it means to be the king. It means you make sacrifices for other people instead of demanding that they make sacrifices for you. And if you look at like the pastoral epistles, first and second Timothy and Titus in the New Testament and then the book of James, they outline what it means to be a Christian leader. So if you're going to be a leader in one of these early Jesus believing communities, you have to abide by these principles. And these principles are all you have to make sacrifices. You have to make sure that you're consistent. You have to make sure that you're working hard for the benefit of other people. And if you don't do that, you can't be a leader because Christian leadership and every Christian philosophy of power should always go back to the cross because that's where God revealed what true power is. It's through sacrifice for other people, not through power and domination. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, then we have then we have evangelicals. What is wrong <laughs> with evangelicals? Oh man. I mean, do you, I would I would love to hear I would love to hear your guys' thought, thoughts on that. What I mean, what in the world do you think has happened over the last? I have some theories there, but I'd love to hear what you guys have to say. Over the last forty years, what has gone wrong with American Protestantism? Uh, Andrew, you got anything to say on that? That's a well, yeah. I'm, I mean, trying to you know trying to refine society. It it can be it can it's double edged sword. You know, it's good in, in some ways and it's destructive in others. It just depends on how the people want to use that for their advantage. You know, a lot of uh, it's very politically advantageous to to call out people and say, that's not right. You know, I need that. And they, they just use that as an excuse so, so they, can, they can gain power and move up the card. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and if, and to add on, I mean, I think that the issue with, with evangelicalism and, and just Protestantism in, in general here in, here in this country is, uh, I, I, I think it, it stems from, in my opinion, it stems from post-Civil War um, and the embrace of a more national, a more nationalized sense of patriot, patriotic duty since the consolidation of federal power and, and uh, the failure of of succession and, and simple peaceful divorce because there was a disagreement between the North and the South. Actually, if we could go even further because Illinois, Illinois actually almost, almost succeeded as well. New York city almost succeeded as, as an independent city state. I mean, because they didn't want to lose their free trade with the, with King cotton South. Um, but I mean, it, it, it goes with that. Um, it also goes with, I think, this, I think the South and still is really um, was a, a stronger beacon of that Christian Protestant Protestant can't talk Protestantism, um, yeah, rather than the North, which uh, I think in the North uh, predominantly you had more of this uh, social structure of of the New Age um, spiritualism that was coming about uh, that was. Uh, that was more, uh, I guess it had more of a sense of, well, the new age movement of today for the most part, where, uh, I mean, so you, you kind of had the, the North and the South fighting on a spiritual level, um, as well as a political level, as well as an institutional level, an economic level, 
but then you also had the progressive movement um and the labor wars i mean and it it just it became more modern so by the time christianity comes back and fold in the united states like tenfold it's kind of been poisoned a little bit it's kind of more like we got to align ourselves politically in order to get back into uh, an influence so i don't uh, yeah i mean without constant without going on a tangent and rambling under nothing i, I i'm just gonna say it got too political <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I I, so. I completely agree with that. One of the things that I think Murray Rothbard and Ludwig von Mises emphasized in their work that very few other people have noticed is that almost all of the early progressives were Christian. Uh, you know, and they, they because and the reason why they mm. were progressives is they they believed in uh, this idea called post millennialism, which is this reading of the mm -hmm. Book of Revelation and other quote unquote prophetic. I think it's a misreading, but it it's a reading of certain texts in the New Testament that they think refer. Mm -hmm what's going to happen in the future. And in post-millennialism, they believe that there has to be a thousand year reign of peace on the earth before Jesus can comes back and before mm -hmm. Jesus can come back. So the idea is that if you can use these new progressive socialist ideas to usher in this thousand year reign of peace on the earth, then we can trigger the return of Christ. So a lot of the early progressives were Christians who wanted to enact this through progressive policies. And as you said before, it's during this time that the United States state, like the federal government was rapidly mm -hmm. expanding. And throughout the 20th century, the size of the government continued to grow and grow and grow to where there was more up for grabs than ever before. And I think you're, you're right. For a long time, evangelicals in the United States didn't really have a political home. There were some that were progressive. There were some that were conservative, but there was no, there was no united evangelical voting bloc. And I think the Republicans in the late 1970s were able to figure out that the evangelical community was a massive group of politically homeless Americans. And so with the Ronald Reagan administration, they deliberately tailored a lot of their message and their agenda to try to reach that voting block. And it was successful. And so I think since the 1980s on, there's been this, this connection or relationship between political conservatism and evangelicalism that didn't really exist until before 1980. And this also goes back to like the whole Lord of the Rings paradox where mm -hmm. in the Lord of the Rings, there's, you know, there, there's, there's that very famous scene where Boromir, whoever it is, is holding the ring. And he says, well, why, why, why can't we use this for good? But the problem is you can't use it for good because the ring corrupts everyone that touches yeah. it. And Tolkien was an anarchist. The ring is a symbol of power. Mm -hmm. And I think the problem with American evangelicalism is that once they got a taste for power, that by definition is going to corrupt their witness and mission to the world because as Christians, we're supposed to be representing Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah. That's that should be our North Star. But instead, we'd rather grab the reins of political power and use it to impose our vision of reality on other people, making us no different than the people that we are supposed to criticize. And so I think you have all those factors coming together there in the 1980s, and we're just living with the reality of that. And unfortunately, the church has been so stupid and so foolish in the way that they have used that power to oppress people that are different than them, uh, that they've lost a lot of their credibility. And I think in the long run, this is going to be incredibly bad for the American church. Yeah, I mean, I like and like the fact that you mentioned that is like the church is the church, no matter what institution it is, whatever do, denomination. I mean, it seems like they fall into line with whatever the power structure is in order to keep itself afloat, like the Catholic Church. I mean, we all know 
their their not their allegiance, but at least their their uh, their blind eye that they had with the Nazis uh, and fascist Italy in in the thirties and the forties, especially at the height of the Holocaust. I mean, same with the evangelicals; they're just they're trying to hold a politically ho- homeless uh, sect of Christians in America finally found a home within the Republican Party. And then in, in effect, when it comes to that, the Republican Party also found a new hope because the Republican Party had been dying probably since, um, God, the 1930s. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're talking about the, the true the true progressives. I mean, the socialist Republicans born out of socialist thought in 18. 18- 1854 and, and the party of Lincoln celebrated by the Soviet Union, by the way, and the rallies <laughs> Lincoln. Um, a lot but of American GOP they, uh, members don't like to admit that. No, but the, but that's, that's where, that's where the Republican party kind of lost its luster was, uh, was TR split in 1912 when he went on his own thing with the bull moose um, and the Democrats kind of took and they they hijacked the the progressive movement, understanding, hey, this is this is here, we can use this, and then they wielded the power of the institutional structures that were put in place that the that the Republicans and the Democrats are still at a tip for tat even to to this day. Republicans build the structure, Democrats wield the power. That's and, and I think that's where the evangelicals come in. Is like they needed a home. Republicans needed attachment to kind of have influence. And, and on top of that, most of the evangelicals were predominantly in the old Democrat yeah. South. With um, as the Democrats were becoming more progressive, and so they took that. So they kind of. They kind of helped each other. They molded a relationship of power and influence to kind of give themselves a chance, at least temporarily. Now, I think that temporary chance that uh, is long gone. I think we'll probably see the Republican Party finally collapse in the next in, in the upcoming years. They may not. They might be too uniparty that it's they might <laughs> right. keep them. But I mean, yeah. But uh, that's that's where I see it. Is I mean, it was just. It was a it was a kind of a way for the Republican Party to stay in reach in the and then this this Christian sect that nobody really hears about finally having some sort of say. Yeah. And it's for me, like I don't I don't know. The reason why I'm a libertarian, I, I tell people this all the time, but the reason why I'm a libertarian is because I'm a Christian first. Like that's my that was my first commitment. And I remember when I became a Christian in high school and started reading the Bible, one of the themes that stood out to me the most in the New Testament was the idea that people had to choose this faith for themselves. You cannot impose it on other people on there are eternal consequences for making the wrong choice. But at the end of the day, I have my faith and my responsibility was not to force somebody else to believe in Jesus or to force them to live by the values that arose from my faith, but to try to peacefully convince them through spreading the gospel and by being an example through the way that I live my life. And so as I got older, I kind of just took that basic notion and applied it to politics. Why do we have to have a system where you, where one side has to impose their will on somebody else through force? Shouldn't we 
just have a completely free system where people are free to live what they want and then allow all these ideas to compete in the marketplace? Because I believe that the gospel is just as good, better even than any other worldview that's available out there. And so if we had a truly free society where people were allowed to freely express themselves and then live by the, by the, the values that arise out of their worldview, we'd be in a much better place to spread the gospel than doing exactly what the evangelicals did, grasping for political power and trying to dominate other people through political power. That's exactly what the Christian nationalists are trying to do right now. Mm -hmm. It's never worked for the evangelicals and it never will work in a million years because, and this is the thing the Republicans and the Democrats just can't understand. When you try to impose your worldview on society through force, there will always be a reaction and that reaction will always be worse than the thing that you were initially responding to. And I think this is one of the, this is why we have these cycles where you have a Democrat administration for eight years, everyone gets pissed off about all of the terrible decisions they make. So then there's this white right wing reaction that's just as authoritarian and they wind up failing because they piss everybody off on the other side. And we have this cycle where none of these problems are ever actually addressed or solved. It's just people grasping for power to try to wield it against other people to force them to live by values that that they don't have. And I think that that is the fundamental problem. And as Christians, if we believe that Jesus is king, we have to reject that outright. We have to advocate for a society where people can freely share ideas and where people don't exercise arbitrary power and dominion over others. I mean, it, it could be worse. We could have two characters fighting for the presidential election. Oh, wait. Oh, wait. <laughs> yep. so, every every race is in the nursing home. All right. That's, I mean, that's that's pretty sad where, where we're at right now. I mean, the fact that the, the, the aspect of the system we built is, has conjured up Donald Trump and Joe Biden <laughs> for president. I mean, so I mean I guess we have Nikki Haley now. I mean yeah. she might she might beat Trump, but oh neocon Nikki. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I, I I I tell you, I, I, if I was a little kid in the Middle East right now, I'd be afraid. Mm. Uh, I'd be I'm I'd say uh, come on Israel, finish up, <laughs> get it done. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sadly, I mean that's you know, I hate I hate for everything that's going on, especially now and especially what what more chaos has occurred in Israel and Gaza and all that. Like, I mean, it's just a never ending consequence. And I guess we could go, we could turn towards the Bible on that aspect too. Cause why is it that uh, there, it seems like there's an eternal struggle for this, for this little strip of land from uh, a once known as the, the land of milk and honey, Canaan. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the current iteration of, of the violence that we're experiencing in the Middle East goes back really just to the end of the 19th century with the rise of modern Zionism. I think that that's at the root of a lot of the conflicts going on in the Middle East. And I think, again, after World War One, imposing like like the, you know, the imperial powers kind of carving up the Middle East and imposing their mandates on particular part of the Middle on particular parts of the Middle East and forcing people to live where they didn't want to and all that. And then, of course, you have the establishment of the nation state of Israel after World War Two, which was kind of like the crown jewel of the Zionist project. But up until that point, Jews and Christians and and Muslims were able to coexist relatively peacefully in the Middle East it, with the meddling of the Western superpowers in the late 19th and early 20th century that created a lot of the conflict that we see in the Middle East today. I think a lot of people go back and anachronistically read prophecies from the Bible into what's currently happening in the Middle East. But 
I think that there's a completely non-theological answer to mm -hmm. that question. It's just simply that imperial powers went messing and meddling in territories that they had no business being a part of. And it's the idea, kind of what you were saying, Andrew, earlier mm -hmm. with blowback. It's we go over there and this is the this is the inevitable consequence of years of foreign policy failures in the Middle East. We should have a foreign policy in the Middle East, thousands of miles away from the United States of no strategic threat to us whatsoever. Yes, they have lots of oil, which is the real reason why we all know mm -hmm. we're over in the Middle East. That has to do with that and, in, you know, in, in imperial designs and all of those kinds of things but it doesn't have to be that way and it wasn't historically inevitable i do think that there's a really interesting parallel and there's an excellent book called uh the first crusade and the quest for the apocalypse by a jewish scholar named jay rubenstein and he goes back to the 11th century with the establishment under pope urban ii and 1094 and 1095 of the first crusades and one of the points that he makes in that book is that you were in the, you know, you were at the end of the first Christian millennium and throughout Europe at this time, there was kind of this great apocalyptic expectation that Jesus was going to come back and that this was going to be the, the end of world. This was going to be the end of history as you know, it. that God was going to come back and resolve all the problems in history and bring it to its intended conclusion. And so per Pope Urban II was able to capitalize on that millenarian expectation and say, Hey, if we go over and conquer the Holy land, again, it's just kind of like, it's just kind of like the, uh, it's kind of like the post or the, uh, the post millennialist um, progressive Christians in the late 19th century. If we go over and conquer the Holy land, then we can trigger the return of Jesus and he'll come back and we'll bring about the end history. So there's that theological aspect to it. Even going back to the Crusades, you have the fact that pilgrims had always been able to travel to the Holy Land since the Muslims conquered it in the 7th century, and a new group of Muslims came into town and conquered Jerusalem and kicked all the, the Seljuk Turks, and they were violent towards other Muslims. A lot of other Muslim groups did not like the Seljuk Turks, and they refused to allow Christians to go on their pilgrimage. So there's not it's not just that there's theological uh, reasons for these conflicts in the Middle East. A lot of them come down to economics and power politics as well and i think that we have a tendency because there's kind of this aura around israel as it being like the chosen nation. there's no connection between the modern nation state of israel and historic jewish people and in fact many jews around the world reject the idea of zionism like there's a large strain of jewish thought that is completely against the zionist movement and i think that it just goes to show you that these these conflicts that recur throughout history in the Middle East have a lot less to do with what we see in the Old Testament and a lot more to do with empire building and economics and using people's gullible, theological, uh, theologically shallow ideas in order to convince them to go and fight for things that have nothing to do with the Bible or with Jesus or any of that. I think the most brilliant aspect of the Zionist Jewish lobby in the United States is convincing evangelical Christians that by giving money and political support to Israel, they can bring about the return of Jesus. Like Benjamin Netanyahu is a genius for being able to convince these people that that is the case, despite the fact that there is no biblical evidence for that whatsoever. It's just it, the whole thing doesn't make any sense. But again, we know because we've read Scott Horton and all, all of that. We know that this is just in the 21st century about the American empire. And that's the reason for all these conflicts overseas. And if we just came home and stopped funding these conflicts, they'd find ways to figure out those problems. Yeah. I mean, I, I find it quite interesting with the, um, now the American empire, we kind of took over the British, but uh, at, at one point while they were trying to figure out the, Jewish question and with the Palestinian mandate, the, the Jewish and the Arab question with uh, Britain and, and France with the, the Balfour Agreement, the, which uh, the infamous Rothschilds were a big part of the banking family. So, um, but I mean, a lot of the, the, the main 
uh, leaders of the of the Arabs actually wanted to do business with they wouldn't they wouldn't talk to anybody they actually they wanted to conduct business with the united states and only the united states they wanted the united states say in it because at that point we were the ones that were like we were the isolationists we were the non-interventionists we were they they did that we knew they knew that the united states were not they weren't going to come and encroach on their culture their land their space they weren't going to to they were they weren't going to interfere with with their needs so they they wanted the united states to come in and, and be that the that arbiter um rather than britain or france or the league of nations or or whatnot and uh and now you you see that you you, you see it tilt and we're now exactly what we were against not even that long ago i mean literally just a century ago the exact opposite than what we are now and i i I find that fascinating for what we kind of took the torch for just because of the events of world war ii um and the fall of essentially the fall of great britain um we we kind of just took the torch and became the monster that uh that we were inevitably against yeah, and the thing that is the most frustrating about that is it didn't have to be that way. I think that after World War II, had we realized that like nation building and radical progressivism and socialism and all that stuff does not work. Just look at Europe. It does. It obviously in 1945, it obviously does not work. Had we had leaders, political leaders, had it not been Harry Truman and some of the other people that were in power at that time that actually had a sense of American civic virtue, that we believe in the values of America. We believe in freedom. We believe in free association. We believe in free markets. This is what we believe as a country. And we're not going to do this European stuff anymore. Had we just ended it all and just said, it's over. We're not, we're not going to build out an empire. Communism would have collapsed on its own accord. It does not work. We know that it does not work. We did not need to build up a giant military industrial complex and further enlarge the size of the state in order to fight communism because we all knew that that was going to be an experiment that would never make it in the real world but instead we propped up communist regimes around the world for decades because we just continued to intervene in places around the world where we had absolutely no business being who cares if vietnam becomes a communist country it's not going to work for them eventually the people get sick and tired of it and they'll rise up and overthrow their own leaders we don't have to get involved in that it was not a threat to us, but instead we built up this massive military apparatus and we built up all of these state institutions to try to protect us from the communists. And that leads directly into the war on terror and the current crises that we're in right now. Mm-hmm. And had we just as a country had the wherewithal to say, you know what, we're going to be the, the shining city on a hill. We're going to be the beacon of liberty for the rest of the world. We're not doing this stuff anymore. The Europeans are all, they screwed it all up. We could have, we could have stopped all of this from happening, but instead after world war two, the lesson wasn't, we shouldn't be like the Europeans. The lesson was we need to do exactly what the Europeans did, only we're going to do it better this time because we're bigger and stronger, and the rest of the world was destroyed by World War II, and that has led to all of the dysfunction that we see in our society today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 sad. Uh, it really, uh, there's nothing else to say. And true, and the, the the part of the communism going to collapse, the Soviet Union did. I mean, the Soviet Union collapsed probably about. The, time the berlin wall uh, was built in fact that was the reason why the wall was built because they were losing so many people across uh the soviet union into germany into west germany and as well as berlin too like 
I mean, a lot of people don't realize there was a wall across Germany. Berlin was in East Germany, but um, but yeah, they were losing so many people that they were they were people or resources. They were collapsing, so they needed a wall. Um, Trump's big wall, um, <laughs> the best wall. <laughs> the best Everyone wall. loves the beautiful wall. China has one, <laughs> believe me. <laughs> Donald Trump, Donald Trump's wall would win. I mean, it, yeah, but I mean, as soon as they, as soon as they implemented that, that's when it kind of propped them up just for a few more years. But I mean, but inevitably, the United States, sadly to say, the United States was funding the Soviet Union to, to stay kind of elevated, so we had a an enemy until finally it came crashing to a halt in 1990, 1990, 1991. So we were actually trying to, we were trying to figure out how we can keep it from going into disarray as well. Like uh, in 91, when, when they were, when they were in their in-between phase and the, the communists were trying, the Soviets were trying to maintain power. They were holding their first elections and yeah. So we were trying to influence we influenced even the Soviet Union from not collapsing, yeah. and it, it it inevitably collapsed on its own. It collapsed because communism is a failure, and even the United States was propping up the, the communists of the Soviet Union to incentivize an enemy, to manufacture yeah. an enemy. Of course, now you wonder why. Now everybody wonders why the war on terror had to occur and manufacture an enemy. Yeah. I mean, again, it's that like you think about organizations like NATO were designed with the specific purpose of checking communism. They were going to be a Western check on the spread of communism in the East. That was the purpose of it. And that was also the stated purpose of the buildup of the United States military apparatus after World War II. This is exactly what Eisenhower talked about in his uh, in his farewell mm -hmm. address when he described what was happening as the military industrial complex. And so we make it to the end of the Cold War. And for 40 years, this these giant military expenditures and our participation in an organization like NATO at least had the pretext of us being able to say we have this massive enemy called communism in the East, and we have to have all of these institutions in place because they could attack us at whatever time they wanted. So the logical conclusion of that is that if the Soviet Union and communism were the great enemies, well, in 1990, we won that war. The war is over. That means we don't need NATO anymore. That means we don't need the world's largest military and the history of the human race by factors of 100. We don't need any of that stuff anymore. We won the war. Let's come home. But there were thousands of people that were making lots and lots of money off the Cold War. And so what did we do? We had to go and immediately get ourselves entangled in Middle Eastern affairs. And of course, that started before the end of the Cold War, too. That goes back to the, the late 1970s. And really, I think it goes back to Nixon getting us off the gold dollar and us having to yeah. <laughs> us having to build out the petrodollar in order to have something to back our yeah. currency. There's a whole complicated history back there. But ultimately, at the end of the day, in 1991, we had another chance for peace. We could have said we're done, but there were too many rich and powerful people that were making millions and millions and billions and billions off of these wars for us to wrap it up. So we just went and found new wars to fought and fight, and that's what we've been doing ever since. Again, like all you know, the, the $200 billion aid that we've given Ukraine over the last couple of years was not aid to the Ukrainian. It was money that was given to companies like Raytheon and Boeing and Lockheed Martin that produce weapons that they then sell to these countries. There's nothing, there's no aid about it at all. We just perpetuated a war in which hundreds of thousands of completely innocent people died, in which none of, no one had any business fighting to begin with.
And it's, it's all just so sad to see that and to see how many evangelical Christians will line up behind every single new war initiative in the United States as if that that's just OK, you know, as followers of Christ. Yeah, followers of Christ, but support war. You know I mean, yeah. yeah. Talk about double standard terms. Yeah, that's I mean, it's it is it yeah. is it's interesting, interesting times on, on that to be a Christian. You got to support war and you got to be pro Israel. <laughs> I mean, yeah. why, why, wild. Yeah, why not be pro human being? So, I mean, yeah, uh, I don't, I don't like, I don't like what Hamas did on October seventh either. But, I mean, Hamas has done a lot more heinous things before then. This was probably one of their worst. But Israel's done just as much before October seventh. So that wasn't their nine eleven. And then those who burn what they've been doing after people. that. I mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And ironically enough, that's that's what the Nazis did. They burned books and then they started burning people. And that's exactly what Israel is doing. That's what the United States is doing. That's and and we have people that are supporting it. I I, I call it I think it's more ignorance. I I mean, I don't I'd like to say most evangelicals are not evil people. They don't want to watch babies getting maimed and dismembered. I mean, but they are ignorant because I mean, it's kind of like the, what's the old saying, uh, just out of sight, out of mind. Right. So yeah. what I can't see it, it really happening, but I mean, but the United States has to go over there and they have to, they have to kill evil. They have to destroy evil because uh, they're evil over there. Yeah. So, and it's, it's sad. It's like what George W. Bush said, we have to make the world safe for democracy. <laughs> By bombing for a half million Muslims. <laughs> it's good for ratings. Yeah. Oh, it sure is. It is. It's big time. Speaking speaking of the petrodollar, uh, it is a, it is definitely, and I think we actually discussed this on our last episode, Andrew. Uh, it was yeah. mentioned. Uh, the petrodollar is done. They they're already trading oil and wands. So, yeah. I mean, once once it, once trading in the, in another currency. It's it's no longer the, the monopoly is over. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's what yeah. radical decentralization is all about, right? Breaking yeah. it up pieces at a time. Mm-hmm. Even so, if it is with a common uh, with communist part, uh, co-partner or whatever you want to call it. So, uh, well, uh, we've gone. I think we've gone almost the hour and a half point. We've oh, gone way over. Yeah, that's no, been great, guys. Yeah, so that we always we love it when we get to we, we go over. I don't even realize it, but uh, <laughs> <go>. <laughs> so. But uh, we we probably should go ahead and wrap this up before it gets too late. We could probably go on and on and on. We could probably go like honestly three days straight if we really wanted to, if we were up to it and and uh, didn't didn't have lives outside right. of this, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when and need, didn't need to sleep, we could probably just go. So, um, but, uh, let's, let's wrap this up. Any, anything, uh, anything else to say, uh, anything to, to plug in Alex or, or anything else you want to say to, to wrap things up? Yeah, like I said, man, I just really appreciate you 
you guys having me on the show today. This has been a ton of fun. I've really enjoyed talking with you guys today. Uh, like I said, my pro my podcast is called the Protestant Libertarian Podcast, Biblical Studies and Libertarian Philosophy, combining the two of those. And uh, uh, the organization I work for is the Libertarian Christian Institute. Again, a lot of great content. So libertarianchristians.com. And, you know, I know you and me, Zach, uh, are mutuals on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at ProLibertyPod. So come over and give me a fight. If you like Zach's stuff, you're going to you're going to like what uh, you're going to like what I do. Andrew, are you are you on are you on Twitter? I'm on Twitter, but I never use it. So I'll, I'll definitely be following okay. you in just a minute. Yeah, you're you're I was I was looking for your profile and I couldn't find it. So if you follow me, I'll definitely I'll definitely follow you back. Okay. It's a Thank detective you. Conan. Yeah. Just look for the, <laughs> the look for the detective Conan. <laughs> nice. I think. I don't know. It might not be Detective Conan now. <laughs> yeah. So uh yeah. Um anyways, uh Andrew, uh, anything in your corner? Uh, no, I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for checking in. Cool, cool. Can you you want to you want to for for this episode uh, and everything that we've talked about? You want to you want to give a little explanation to that quote behind you that Max Turner wrote about? Yeah. Um. Well, basically, the neutrality is is a fleeting asset, and you have to use it when you can and be able to grow grow through it. So people. Put a lot of pressure on you to do things that they, they think is moral and ethical and you know you have to be able to buck and say no i i have my own way of thinking and i'll do it as i as, as i need to otherwise you'll uh you'll forget exactly what uh life you is are as about. a person mm -hmm. yeah. yeah um and and next thing you know the the future isn't so bright because uh what was there to live for right so it's it's yeah. you know, it's it's like we were talking about like you want a king uh okay well you're going to live with the consequences of having that said king um so and that, that's uh so that I'm, I'm glad that uh that that was your background today because i think uh, everything that we talked about from the bible to history to foreign policy to everything we bounced about that uh quote right there the men of the future will yet fight there, the men of the future will yet fight their way to a, many a liberty that they do not ever miss. And I think that kind of explains everything. And it explains the biblical narrative as well from uh, the Old Testament to the New Testament and why the, the scripture had to be restored with Jesus' birth and inevitable death and the resurrection of the New Testament because of the false, the men forgetting their way what is <laughs> um and 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 not understanding what the future could be and so you you needed the new testament for the old testament to be reviewed so and then now and then you have the then you have the evangelicals that that want to prop up israel and build up the temple so they can have their death cult and jesus can come <laughs> back and everything can be restored so <laughs> A, th a thousand years we need a thousand years and jesus can come back that's a little dangerous because wasn't didn't wasn't the nazi wasn't the third Reich <laughs> supposed to run for a thousand, <laughs> a thousand you're right yep oh so um but before we step onto a tangent this is uh this has been a wonderful conversation um would love to have you come back and and discuss further alex if you if you would uh have that yeah. down the road that'd be awesome yeah that'd um, be great. and uh so 
Um, and uh, with that, let's uh, let's go ahead and reel it in then. So I, again, am the legacy of Jennifer Ant Kaiser, and uh, I am Zachary Kaiser. This is Andrew Joseph. He's Alex Bernardo of Libertarian, uh, Protestant Libertarian. Almost screwed that up. How, yeah, how can good, I do good. that? <laughs> so, and this is the legacy, right? Peace. See you. And, Thanks uh, for watching. Peace. This has been great, guys. Thank you. Thank you.